Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Audra Simons. We're excited for you to join us today for this special part two episode with Josh Corman. He is Vice President of Cyber Safety Strategy at Clarity and founder of I Am The Cavalry, a grassroots organization focused on the intersection of digital security, public safety, and human life. He shares insights on everything from recalibrating the cost of connected medicine If you can't protect it, you can't connect it, the Omnibus Appropriations Act, and actionable insights on what we can do right now as individuals and collectively to make a difference. So without further delay, let's get to the point. You're certainly answering a lot of them and probably raising some others. (laughs) Like, like, do you think some of the, um, maybe the more... um, the normal people sitting at home on a regular basis are not necessarily reacting to what's going on because their healthcare, it's expensive healthcare in the United States in comparison. I mean, I'm, I'm UK, it's NHS. There's also private healthcare that you can pay for, but is, is it only if people are impacted in their own lives that they react and therefore would put pressure on the government to do something about it? Or what do you what do you think, in terms of it, lots of people are kind of going, eh, it doesn't matter, you know. Well, you know, without naming names, I was on some recent, you know, government planning, public private partnership um, groups by virtue of both my congressional task force and my emergency assistance service. I was there to ensure that we were solving for the national security needs, the national capacity, the national resilience, the national recovery. And I just kept finding them going back to, well, let's help the helpable. Let's help the survive, the ones that are going to survive. And one of them out loud essentially said, this is a capitalistic market. Like survival of it is like not all of them are going to make it and that's okay. And I violently disagreed with every fiber of my being. Um, like we only get one public private partnership. Our job is to look at what's right for the public good, not for our individual private interests. And the notion of save the savable, I can understand that perspective if I try to like put myself in their shoes, but it's an incomplete view because perhaps you haven't had to wait um, too long while you're bleeding or while you're injured um, because you had lots of alternative hospitals nearby. Perhaps the hospital in your town got ransomed, but it was okay because there was overflow capacity. But if you're one of those affected in a different part of the country or it's your loved ones that live elsewhere, that tends to wake you up. Um, so as I start asking more of these questions and encountering more humans and the human aspects of this, I keep hearing more and more stories about, I had to drive my dad six hours to get the care he needed six hours. I mean, they had to get a hotel. Like, so that sounds inconvenient. It sounds abhorrent, but I'm afraid when they're going to notice that no, I lost a loved one that was savable because we couldn't get it somewhere in time. And we studied a lot of that during the pandemic. I also fear that, we're also at a time in the species where we're inured to death. Like we had so much of it, we just went numb to it and we've accepted that people are going to die. 
yes, at the macro level, people are going to die. And hospitals before they were shattered, they knew that. You can't save everybody. Right? There's always a med student on ER or Grey's Anatomy, your favorite show, that goes to their first loss. And they're like, I can't believe we didn't save them, right? You're going you're gonna to lose people. That's baked in the cake. What they forget sometimes when you double click is there are preventable losses of life, right? We're not going to save everybody, true. And we could have saved these ones if we had a smart, smarter technology, if we had a smarter policy, if we had better funding. So I think we are being very cavalier about the preventable loss of life. And as more of these hospitals close, I think more um, people will feel it personally and then they'll do something about it. But um, usually that's fairly late. So can we have intervention before it's too late? So I'm not trying to tell you that I'm giving up, um, but the shattering moment is what I'm doing has been critically necessary and it's not gonna be enough. The constraint is what we really need to do if I, and I don't have the right language for this, I'm saying it in real time with you, but as I try to have something positive here, we have hidden costs in connected medicine. We have to render those hidden costs visible. Um, just thinking like an economist, right? There's true costs, right? Render the true costs visible. And then we have to factor that in the cost of the market and adjust accordingly. And what that probably means is, you know, the, the payer models and the insurance models and the, the way we look at these will, will be quite different. I don't actually think we're going to need huge hospitals in the places that are closing them. But we will need some non-zero proximal care for urgent things. So we haven't really recalibrated the cost of connected medicine in the fact that while we have new things that can make remote medicine better, it doesn't go to zero. Agreed. And we have a very large geographic area. And since you're from the UK, I'll, I'll give you a bonus item. Um, part of my heartbreak is, I mean, many of the problems I just described are for two things that the U.S. has different than the U.K. One is we don't have national health service, right? Um, still largely capitalistic and privatized and broken. And two, we have an incredibly large landmass, geographic space and time to cover of proximal alternative care. It's going to be harder on a map this big versus a map the size of the U.K. Pick your favorite country here. But those, those two differences are quantifiable, right? Um, but... NHS is failing as fast or worse in some ways. And when I looked at what's common mode failure between the two, given those two really material differences, and a lot of it is there's no nurses and doctors. Um, even before the pandemic, we were kind of like outsourcing to, you know, taking nurses that were cheaper from Africa, from India, from Malaysia. Yeah, Commonwealth. We, we always advertise for teachers and nurses and doctors from the Commonwealth countries. Yeah. That's true. And when everybody's got the same strategy and there's a finite resource pool, I mean, my, my eldest daughter is in nursing school right now. It's going to take years before she's able to help replenish all the lost nurses we've had. So the rate we're losing them is exceeding the rate we're, we're growing them. And we don't pay them right and we don't treat them right and we don't train them right. And so there's really fundamental challenges here. And I think what we have is fairly old models of capacity planning and payment and incentives that were wildly disrupted by added connectivity and innovation, but never got recalibrated or re recalculated. So we need a big reckoning for this. And the, the philosopher in me says, if you're over-dependent on undependable things, which we are, and if that level of connectivity exposes you to accidents and adversaries 700 times a year, if you can't 
afford that. If you get punched by ransomware and you can't get back up, maybe the answer is to disconnect. You know, if you're over-dependent on undependable things, you have two choices. You can make these things more dependable, which I have started to do with the Patch Act, and we have more to do for hospitals. That'll take time. And or you can depend less. So make it more dependable and or depend less. So I have like a five-pronged plan for keeping hospitals. So are you actually suggesting yeah. like air gap? So air gapping our hospitals? Air gaps never exist. If the, you know, they're kind of like fake, but... Um, like they never really existed and they're certainly being perforated on purpose by business incentives and connectivity and telehealth. There is a benefit to that connectivity. I, um, but go ahead and finish your thought before I assume I know. That's all right. No, no. So I was just curious, are, are you literally talking about disconnecting hospitals still have connectivity within for the things that you need to do in terms of so that things can work, but actually like disconnecting from the internet or putting certainly the things in the way in terms of how things get in. So, so we have certain solutions that literally everything that comes in is cleansed and anything that could potentially be like say dangerous links and things like that get removed. Are you talking about kind of implementing more of that kind of approach or do you literally mean like let's unplug and go old school. I'm going to sort of reframe this because I can't tell individual hospitals what to do or how to do it. I don't know the instruments, but I can say a strategic framing is this, and I keep changing it. So it may sound different if you ask me a month from now. But um, I've been asking my super friends from Congressional Task Force, from CISO work, where we're doing hand to hand combat with you know, Russian. Uh, ransomers and whatnot. And I said, what can we do to stem the bleeding right now? Because the real fix is going to take 10 years, 15 years. Even if we give a ton of money to everybody right now, it says, go fix your hospital. It'll be, we're going to still be ransomed for the next 10 to 15 years. So if we accept that, if we accept that, I liken it to 9-11. Uh, hijackers could get on commercial aircraft and turn them into missiles. Were we going to get rid of all of our airplanes like that? No. And we did a lot of stupid things in the wake of that event. One of the only smart things we did was we said, they're going to get on the plane. Let's make sure they don't get in the cockpit. Yeah. So the steel reinforced cockpit doors. So here's my five things, badly worded, that I just go to whenever someone's saying, what can we do right now? And I said, okay, in the wake of ransoms, um, what are our steel reinforced cockpit doors in the hospital? Can I have a ransomed hospital that can still provide time-sensitive care for heart, brain, and pulmonary issues? And the systems that if they go down, people die. It's the EMR. It's heart and brain. It's systems in the critical path of heart and brain treatment, like imaging for, is it a, with a stroke, is it a clot or a bleed? Because if it's a clot, there's a clot buster that'll save brain, save life. If you give that clot buster and it's a bleed, you'll kill them. They'll bleed out fast. So what are those systems that are too critical to fail at hospitals that are too isolated to fail? You know, in the financial meltdown, we said too big to fail. I'm saying too isolated to fail. So number one is we should focus our surgical fire on the system, the subsets of those hospitals that are too time sensitive to go down. So have a ransom hospital, pay the financial to clean up, but don't let these systems go down. Have analog backups, have downtime procedures that work, or have equipment that's not connected. 
So what are those still reinforced cockpit door strategies? Number two, not every hospital in the country is equally risky to this because we should do a look at the geographically isolated hospitals that if disrupted, there's no proximal alternative care. And you can do that with math and you can assess out which ones need asymmetric help, outsized help to short up that they don't go down or that if they go down, they get back up quickly. Number three then is in a world where all these buildings are flammable, we need more fire trucks. So we need, at least in the, in the interim, a lot more money thrown at, at uh, crisis management and instant response from CISA, from HHS, it's called uh, ASPR, um, from FEMA maybe, that when these are enabled, inevitably hit, we drive in with trucks, with money, with staff, with alternative equipment, and with incident response help to clean up and evict the bad guys faster because these are the longest disruptions of any sector. Number four, like there's some very dangerous equipment and legacy equipment in here. There's a lot of my uh, relationships show more than 50% of the equipment in the hospital has an FDA recall associated with it. So these are not only unsupported end of life operating systems that are more likely to get disrupted um, and be the point of entry maybe into a ransom for the hospital, but also that they could empty a three hour dose of calcium channel blocker into your body in 30 seconds, like we showed with the, the, the bedside infusion pumps. So these recall devices should we should have active prohibition. FDA has done wonderful work raising the bar and warning people when something's dangerous, and then hospitals are not required to get rid of them. So we have cash for clunkers type ideas under this banner, where Senator Warner mentioned it as well. I put it in my task force report 2017, and he put it in his report. But can we either um, make prohibitions and or cash for clunkers stimulus to, or even just if we have to keep using them, better isolate the most dangerous most vulnerable equipment uh, that can do the most harm. And then lastly, um, this can't be a volunteer effort. Like when there was a crisis of confidence and institutional trust had been broken uh, in financial accounting from Enron scandal, we did Sarbanes-Oxley. This became a board level concern with criminal penalties for the CFO if they don't do general accounting practices. It had an audit regime. And this will not be done out of the kindness of people's hearts when they're cash strapped. This has to be baked in funded, accountable to maintain, to reestablish and maintain the trust of the public in their safety and their reliable access to care. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of just baked in there, but essentially what are the steel reinforced cockpit doors, the time sensitive equipment, which regions, if hit hard, hardest suffer the most, let's give more help to them, beef up our fire response vehicles while we're building fire prevention in the future, drain the swamp of the most dangerous devices, whether dangerous be defined by FDA recall, unsupported operating system, known exploited vulnerabilities, but let's let's focus surgically on the most dangerous devices um, that can do the most harm to humans. And this has to be a regulatory carrots and sticks financial uh, change, or it's not going to happen. Can't the the safety of your community cannot be predicated on the persuasiveness of the champion within the team, especially when out of those 7,000 hospitals we started with during our task force report in 2017, 85% of them don't have a single security personnel staff to even be that champion, let alone effective. So we, we are in a bit of a death spiral and we're going to have to um, stem the bleeding now to prevent preventable closures. And we're going to have to fix the incentives and assist those most in need of help for those time sensitive conditions. So I start with those things, time sensitivity, geographic isolation, and then baking in the incentives. 
in parallel, the great work we did passing the Patch Act is going to matriculate slowly. But if a typical medical device is in the field for 15 years, it's going to take 15 years to push out the really dangerous stuff, you know, a little bit at a time for the next 15 years. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's pretty dangerous times, but it's not going to be, I'm not a public health official. It's just that the, the empathy journey and going down the rabbit hole, you know, when I went into CISA, I thought I was going to be helping prevent hospitals from getting ransomed or help them recover more quickly. One of the most important things I published had almost nothing to do with cybersecurity. You know, we were studying the effects of ransomware on um, states at hardest to see if we could see if there was a quantifiable loss of life. And the, the metric I was using to do so is called excess deaths. The CDC tracks for all the time. They track expected deaths versus actual deaths by state, by month, by condition and sociodemographic. So if this state normally has 100 deaths from this condition, and now you have 110 against the five-year running average, then that was 10 excess deaths. So in the process of us doing data science to keep Americans alive and specifically looking at erosion of critical infrastructure workforce, we saw at the one-year mark of the pandemic when the U.S. had lost um, 500,000 Americans to COVID, mostly 85 years old or older with four or more other conditions. We had also lost 150,000 excess deaths from non-COVID. And when I looked at who was dying and from what, my gut was, I bet you it's heart and brain and pulmonary, and it was heart and brain and pulmonary. But to my shock, it wasn't 85-year-olds. The fastest growing demographic was 25 to 44-year-olds. It was younger, critical infrastructure people. So here I am trying to like work on cyber resilience. And what I'm noticing is a lot of these supply chain issues in the port of LA or manufacturing or nitro gloves, these are happening because we're having disruptions the sickness, death, burnout in critical infrastructure workforce. And as I study that, I said, this can't, we can't admire the problem. These deaths are going to have an outsized impact on the functioning of the country. Is there any leading indicator? And within a couple of days, we said, yeah, we did a bunch of simple data science and found uh, a public health stat that's published all the time called ICU strain, adult ICU bed strain, uh, bed, bed utilization, sorry which percentage of your ICU beds are used is a trailing indicator for the hospital, maybe not even a meaningful one, but for us, it had strong positive correlation to excess deaths two, four, and six weeks later. So 75% was usually a target before COVID, and sometimes they'd like to run hot of 85% or so. Some of these hospitals were 100% full, 110% full. What we found is, uh, okay, this is a leading indicator, strong positive correlation. We did we adjusted for Poisson models and regression and different state level factors. And this was a very viable metric. And you could see, what does it tell you? It says, if you're a hospital, try to manage your elective strain on your ICU, because once you go over 75%, you're going to see death. And to quantify this for you, I think I said this in the congressional testimony, but if the nation hit 75%, we would see 18,000 dead Americans in two weeks. Not a small number, 18,000. But if you hit 100%, it was 80,000 Americans. And we hit those thresholds three times during the first observation period. So here I am trying to like prove, and I think we did prove loss of life in the state hit pretty hard. By using that instrument of measurement, we could see hospitals in that state that were ransomed, or the regions were ransomed, achieve those excess death stress levels sooner and stay there longer than their peers in the state. So we can quantify minimum, maximum, most likely. So I know, but I won't say out loud how many people we believe died and could be corroborated by state level evidence later. Um, but it's like this number, it's double digit, right? Whereas how did I prove it? By the time we published that data science successfully, 
we had lost another 90,000 Americans. So we were near, we were over the 200,000 Americans lost from excess deaths, from delayed degraded care, from ICU strain. So you start to wonder, am I even a cyber guy anymore? And maybe that's what I'm really wrestling with here is we have some really talented, passionate people that want to make these hospitals safer, these factories safer, these oil and gas pipelines safer from data breaches or ransoms or shareholder impact. But like what we haven't paid attention to is this isn't about shareholder impact. This is about uh, access to water and food and shelter. This is about national security interests. This is about public safety interests. This is do your, does your family get reliable access to food? Uh, can they afford it? Can they go to the hospital when they need to? Um, and the second recognition that's humbling is not only is this much more than local goods for our employer, uh, but to fix these, we can't just use cyber skills. We're going to have to find ways to be systems thinkers and work with others to show this new cyber thing uh, brings weird hazards with it. And we shouldn't just try to point out flaws anywhere because many of those flaws will never hurt or kill anybody, but some of them will. And the intersection of public safety and resilience and national critical functions and our talent pool does not overlap enough. We do a lot of great work that never goes anywhere. And there's a lot of areas that could benefit from us that we never focus on. And I want to try to merge those Venn diagrams better so we know what are the weak links in the national security or public safety arena that need our attention and would benefit from our attention. And how do we align for that common cause, common purpose, so that we have we prevent more preventable losses. So hospitals is one thing, but you know, to be run a hospital, you need drinkable water, you need electricity, you need chemicals, you need transportation. And most of these cross-sector risks, water, electrical, um, emergency care, they're entangled. And most of them suffer from this target-rich cyber poor problem. So increasingly, my focus is on those basic human needs that are over-dependent on unpenable things. They're not getting the help from the privatized volunteer public-private partnerships, and they're increasingly attacked. So we know some things we can do, but it's not just going to be a cyber solution. It's going to be an economic solution, a systems thinking solution, and a rational dependence mapping. And we're not wired that way, but we need to get that wired that way fast. These are cross-functional teams that need to learn from each other. Anyhow, uh, I may be making no sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, you know, it, it, not to, you know, I guess come at it again from a cyber lens, but it's true. I mean, it, when we talk about cyber, the criticality of cross-functional partnership, right? You know, and, and just in a corporate environment, right? You got to have HR, you got to have legal, you got to have all these people talking to each other because again, right, the people impact. And, you know, when you put that through the healthcare lens, I mean, it's truly terrifying, uh, you know, and, and particularly when, when there are, significant needs out there, right, for for this cross-functional partnership and, and how do you bring all those parties together, right, to your point, to to work together for something that is obviously critically needed. Yeah, and, and of course, and I hope I don't sound dismissive when I say this, of course, some very smart people need to be looking at the role of generative AI and large language model processing. And, and of course, some smart people need to be looking at post-quantum crypto, but you know, when you look at a hospital from attacker's eye view, you've got 
unsupported end of life operating systems naked on the internet on Shodan, sometimes with no password, forget multi-factor authentication. There's no authentication, hard coded passwords. Like you don't need, I think where we focus our time at conferences and in our um, collaborations and industry are on the sexy things, the new things that will be important. And some of us need to do so. My mantra lately has been our, our attention on those should be proportional to the manifest harms and active exposures um, that we are facing now. And it's, it's kind of hard to um, look at post-quantum crypto attacks when we're not doing any crypto in a lot of these OT, ICS uh, environments. Like, we are flammable. One of the things I used to say is we, are, we, are, um, pr- we were always prone. We are always prey. We just lack predator interest. That's over. They're here. Uh, and the number of attacks we have, if you talk to really good threat analysts or people on the ransomware task force or a lot of these hand-to-hand firefighters, um, they believe that the number of attacks are throttled only by predator appetite. It's, it's really not about who could get hit. It's how much bandwidth do they have to spring the trap, to wake up, drink their coffee, figure out who we're going to you know, turn the ransomware on from their achieved access. So we are throttled only by predator appetite at the moment, and that's not a good state to be. So um, we've got a lot of work to do. The question is, uh, how quickly can we stop fighting each other? Admit we have a problem. You can't, problem, you can't solve a problem you don't admit you have. So first step is admission. Uh, and instead of trying to do the, you know, the old strategy for the old IT, you know, we, we had an old strategy for old IT. Everything's changed from technology and business perspective. So we need to be brave enough to step back and re-architect how we do this. Um, we're, we're not yet. Well, I think half the battle, right? It's just starting to have these kind of conversations, right? Because I, I think that there's... Knowing is half the battle. <laughs> well, exactly, it's, right? It's and at least the first 20%. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, because I think a lot of people, you know, and that's the thing about healthcare. I, I keep thinking about it. I feel like it's not talked about out enough, or at least I'm not seeing it enough. Uh, you know, and I read a lot of things and, and I, I think as people start to better understand kind of all the nuances as well, these are significant. Um, and I, that's why I love having these conversations so that we can, you know, kind of educate a more broad, a broader community of people and, you know, and you ignite some of those people that could help take action. Right. And, and, and hopefully join the cause, if you will, it's, uh, <laughs> Got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're more of a builder or an architect, you know, one of my, some of my newest thoughts are um, maybe instead of starting with the, the terrible patchwork, historical Frankenstein's monster of a hospital we have now, like, could we, could we look at building reference architectures for if you wanted to make this connected and safe, what would that look like? Whether it's, you know, theoretical or actual, like proof of concept. And, um, I do think there's models. I've had a few ideas of how you could have a minimum viable point of presence in these areas that isn't a traditional hospital, but can ensure that you have what you need, where you need, and when you need it. Um, fully leveraging telemedicine, uh, fully leveraging um, the technology advances we've made, but safely. And there's middle, middle ground stuff too. Like if you're constantly, you know, struggling to maintain your on-premise Microsoft Exchange server that's unsupported end of life 
and it's a lot of work to do hand-to-hand combat with the world's best adversaries, maybe you shouldn't do this anymore. Maybe you should do Office 365 or G Suite or something where someone's doing some of that for you. Um, so there, there's a lot of complexity in elective risk that um, we used to think we could afford. And now, in full light of cost-benefit, we should acknowledge we cannot afford. And I don't mean by money. I mean the overall package deal of rolling your own versus outsourcing. And if you are a solution provider and you mostly look at, well, what's the total addressable market of the average sales price? Um, it, we, it tends to orphan the target rate side report. There's not enough money in it. Well, innovation could expand your total addressable market to, uh, if you can find ways to use technology to make offerings for these smaller ones, ask what would they need. And my experience is when you try to solve for some of these less staffed, less funded organizations, the innovations you make for them also make you more profitable for the bigger players that you're serving. So we, we just tend to say it's a capitalistic market, like what's the big, the big ones, um, which is true for like private industry, but anybody touching critical infrastructure, it affects everybody. Uh, so I, my, my trailing questions tend to be how bad does it have to get before we stop fighting each other on what to do? And then, how long do we have before we regret waiting this long? We only know when we get there, when we get there. That's the problem. And that's why I'm so grateful for the crazy volunteers on this 10-year journey that decided to do it before harm, that decided to invest before people would listen, that did the scaffolding and the prototyping and built the trust. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, it's been an emotional journey. Lots of milestones and touch points. I'm still trying to pick which ones I include in my keynote in Vegas in a week or so. But the one that comes to mind right now, um, in that room, if you watch the video, I said I said to them flat out, guys, people will have to die first before they're going to listen to us. Just want to set your expectations. And somebody said, well, why would we do it then? I said, well, because when that moment comes, we want to have a head start. We want to build trust. We want to have scaffolding. We want them to turn to us instead of lesser people, lesser motives, lesser ideas. And um, pretty early on, after building trust with Suzanne, again, uh, from FDA, she didn't understand, a lot of her team didn't understand why someone like a Billy Rios or a Jay Radcliffe would hack a medical device. What's wrong with them? Like, what's wrong with them? These are life-saving devices. Why would you scare people? What, what's your problem? And that wasn't her attitude, but that was the attitude of a lot of her colleagues. And because she needed to understand, and because we needed to understand, we built some trust. We had some summits with hackers. And I was on my way to Comic-Con right before Vegas, uh, uh, the year two. And um, we were talking through some things and asking some questions. And I'm in the line at Comic-Con to get Stanley to sign Spider-Man pinball machine. And uh, I can't remember exactly the day, but she calls me a couple days later or after DEF CON or before DEF CON. It's all a blur to me, but around that time period. And she said, are you willing to talk to Reuters today? I said, sure. Why? What what am I talking about? He's like, well, she's like, well, we're going to do it. I'm like, do what? So we're going to issue first safety communication for cyber where there's going to be a recall. I said, did somebody get hurt? Because prior to that, what we learned from them is to do a recall, you have to have proof of harm. 
I'm like, what's proof of harm? Well, people have to have an adverse outcome and there has to be direct evidence and it has to be, be probably more than one. And I had spent time and the hackers had spent time trying to argue that in cybersecurity, maybe an unmitigated pathway to harm should be enough to trigger corrective action. Because these won't fail like a hip replacement on a Bayesian bell curve. Like they'll go from no attack to lots of attacks fast. And whatever we said must have worked. Uh, because when I get in the call, I realize, oh, yeah, 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 this is great. This is great. So it was a bedside infusion pump that Billy Rios found he could empty three-hour dose in 30 seconds on without authentication. And it wasn't a patch coming. So they disabled communication. And it told all the medical device makers, oh, wow, we thought we had years before we get regulated on this stuff. We better stand up straight. I guess we have to get our act, you know, our house in order. And I felt really good. And I felt really, my adrenaline was high. And, and uh, you just kind of ride the wave. And I have the interviews. And I tell some of my colleagues, like, this is great. This is great. And my daughters come home from school. And I worked on my house. And they said, Daddy, why, why are you so happy? You know, it's already evidence that maybe I'm not happy all the time. Um, and I was like, how do I explain this to like an 11 year old kid? And as I'm explaining it, I just start to weep. I'm like, oh my God, nobody died. It just hit me like really hard. And like, that was year two of this journey. I'm like, it almost feels like an unimportant thing, but like the idea was, you know, something's missing in the world. Maybe we can try to put it there. And maybe they're not ready to hear us yet, but we still got to do the work because these are long view problems. It is a long time to get here. It's going to take a long time to get out. So full circle, I'm just really grateful for a very large group of volunteers who did this on top of their day job for you know, parts, of, parts of or all of a decade. And we now in a place where the world is very dangerous, very flammable, and increasingly lit on fire. But how great is it that we have part of the cure for mandatory building codes for cybersecurity for the devices on a go-forward basis? And so I can be both really proud and encouraged and heartened by some of these victories, like passing a federal law for that, and really overwhelmed that it's not nearly enough and that things have gotten much worse, much faster. So the only cure to this is I mean, you have a choice. You can either be defeated by this and nihilistic, or you can look at the existence proof of some successes and say, how do we have more of those successes faster in parallel? So um, a lot of people are burned out in this field, in this profession, and I'd encourage them. You can find, like, if you feel meaningless or purposeless or that no one's listening, you can do meaningful things. You can do purposeful things. You can make the world safer. It's up to you what you do with your job. It's up to you what you do with your free time. It's up to you where you channel your talents. And if you don't feel fulfilled, you don't feel positive, the best way to predict the future is to cause it. And I don't know how to take what we've done for a decade to the scale and scope that we need to, but I know we got to figure that out. More hands make light, lighter work. So, it, you know, expand it. You've got the passion to inspire people and good cause for people to want to be involved. Well, and even if you're selfish, like you're going to need care, you're going to need food, you're going to need electricity. Those that in your care or your loved ones are going to get. And uh, one of the ways I used to end a lot of talks is I said, if the world is increasingly dependent 
on digital infrastructure, they're increasingly dependent on you, right? We don't look at ourselves that way, but we are that thin cyber line between um, getting this right and getting it wrong. Can't do it alone, but they can't do it without us. Um, yeah, I don't know. I could talk to you for hours, but I probably will get in trouble if I do. So <laughs> can I try to squeeze in the origin? Sure. Yes. I'm going to try. I only have at most five more minutes left, four more minutes left. So I had researched the rise of anonymous activism, and I was successfully and consistently predicting what they were going to do or false flag operations done in their name, and the intelligence community started getting to wonder why. And I was doing really important work, but I was really burned out. And I got invited into dark places a lot. Say, how are you figuring this out? How are you doing it? And a lot of that trust I built got me permission to bring five of the world's best cyber minds into Fort Meade for two days with General Alexander and Newberger and um, five of their people. And we had to answer challenge questions. And it was breathtaking. Like these people had never worked together before. So it was like individual superheroes forming the Avengers, sort of speaking truth to power, saying things they hadn't heard, they hadn't considered. At the end of those two days, they said, we can't do this one, can't do that one. There's no political will for that one. People have to die first for that one. And basically, we were demoralized. When we went back to the airport bar and drank and no one spoke. And I said, hey, guys, the cavalry isn't coming. I just kind of left it there. That was half of it. What I didn't tell them is the day prior, what I thought was just my mom's stroke, um, when I got back to the car, because you can't bring your cell phones in, I had 18 messages saying, I'm so sorry, Josh, I'm so sorry. When I got to like number you know, 12 or so is one of my sisters. I'm like, what the hell are these people talking about? And it's like, mom's not just a stroke. She's dying. It's gonna. It's nothing we can do. So we hospiced her for, we had to like take her through brain cancer for a while. And it was slow and exhausting and painful. She was a superintendent of the school district and very active in her church. And right before we took her away from her home to stay with my sister till she died, she wanted to say goodbye to her friends and her students and her church. And it just so happened to be Sandy Hook shooting. So the day she wanted to say goodbye to her friends, nobody was able to be present. No one knew she was dying. She didn't get to say goodbye. So I'm looking at my, my mom dying. I'm looking at my daughters crying. who are afraid to go to school. I'm hearing her preacher for an hour, for two hours, for three hours, just say, why is there evil in the world? And I'm getting angry at him. I don't know why I'm angry, but I just feel angry. And I didn't like that church, didn't want to be there, didn't like the situation. Go home, hospice her through January, dies. And then when I had to go back to that church, I um, I actually couldn't go in the building for a while. I just, I'm like, I don't want to go in there. I'm angry. Why am I angry? Can't be angry at mom's funeral. Um, eldest, so I had to get the eulogy. And I just tried to metabolize it. And I, I walk in, I'm like, you know, last time I was here, uh, Sandy Hook shooting, you know, we kept asking, why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil in the world? And it didn't sit right with me. And I couldn't figure out why. And I remember being angry about it. So I think I just figured it out. My mom got to be my school teacher in seventh grade. Somebody got hurt or six. She had to fill in. And she was my science teacher and she was phenomenal. And, uh, of the many things I learned, one was that darkness isn't a thing. It's an absence of light. And cold is not a thing. It's an absence of heat. So maybe it's not just the presence of evil, but maybe it's the absence of good. And maybe if something's missing in the world, we got to put it there. So what's the absence of Marie? My mom's name. I didn't even have an answer to my own question. But I said... I looked at her parents, her siblings, her 
kids, her grandkids, her students. And I said, we don't get to find out because now it falls us to do what she was doing. As soon as I said that, I kind of chose this path right there. I said, if the cavalry isn't coming, I have no idea what to do, but somebody's got to do it. So I think it's a, it's both a sad story, but also an empowering one because a bunch of people who have no right or no business to fill these vacuums chose to, and we have absolutely made the world safer and you could do the same thing. Not only can you do the same thing, we need you to. So, uh, quite a 10 years and everything that came before and after, but, um, but there's a lot more work to do. So. Thank you for uh, having me on. Let me be a little personal, but um. absolutely. Well, and I do want to. I do want to close, Josh. I mean, I just. Um, I I love your passion, and I I think when we're able to have to to have these conversations and share these stories, you're going to inspire people, more people to want to get involved. I think people are looking for somewhere to put that passion and energy because a lot of people are frustrated um, and looking for outlets, and you know to see you take the mantle, right? I mean, the, the power of one person and then the power of a collective is, is incredible. Um, and it just takes, you know, a couple people to get the ball rolling and then it, it, it can make so, such an impact. And so I, I want to thank you for sharing this with our listeners. Cause I am, I'm so excited and inspired and I'm so thankful that people like you are out in the world because we need more of you. And, and I, I think after this conversation, we know it's within all of us to, to do this and take the first step. So thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. And you're absolutely inspirational. And, and just to say, you know, reiterate what Rachel said, it like individuals can make a difference. And, and I just think you need to get more, <laughs> more people makes lighter work. Absolutely. It, it takes time, but eventually you'll have enough of a mass that it will seem less like hard work. Excited for what the next 10 years can bring, Josh. Well, if you want to help shape it, besides Las Vegas, August 8th and 9th, awesome. uh, Cavalry Track, we're uh, got some big decisions to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you All again, right. Josh. Thank I know you. you need to run. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. Until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.